0: John, thank you so much for your testimony. Thank you for uh, just sharing with you, sharing with us your heart and story of how God saved you. Oh, it's joy, just a privilege to uh, hear of God's uh, great work of salvation in your life. You're one of those few guys where uh, you might have been even worse than me in high school. <laughs> I don't think I've said that too many times in my life, but... <laughs> We might have actually hung out if we were uh, in high school together and <laughs> ditched together. My goodness, but uh, praise God, John, and uh, praise God for Huey and Susan and their love for Christ and faithfulness to the Lord and enduring to pray and share the gospel. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? Uh, those that we care for, nearest to us, they know us so well, and um, there's so much baggage and history with our lives with them that. Preaching the gospel for them becomes so difficult. Even just mentioning Christ, sometimes even we praying before them, but for God to open that opportunity and for God to open your heart, we rejoice together. We celebrate in Christ, and and uh, all glory and honor to Him. Um, thank you, Cornerstone, on behalf of Bob and Sophie and my wife. Thank you so much for the undeserved uh, appreciation. Um, I was thinking when I, I was kind of smirking there because. Dan did such a better job at honoring us, and I did last week honoring them. <laughs> I just said, like, a few, a few dumb things about, about Joe killing people with his love. And <laughs> about, like, you know, and then Dan, like, so I was kind of ashamed there. <laughs> but thank you so much. Um, thank you to uh, Joe and Dan and Jason as well for their thoughtful preparation and your hearts as well you know there's so much i want to say you know you guys know us we just we're just sinners saved by grace serving christ because of the gospel and uh, you know bob and i we just we love the church sophie and Surin love the church and we do it with joy it's a privilege and an honor And, um, to be honored this way, uh, we're so humbled, but we're so thankful. And, uh, it really, like Pastor Dan said, glorifies Christ, exalts the gospel, and it, uh, lifts high the church of Christ. So because of that, we rejoice. We, you know, our joy is not that we're being appreciated or we're elders. That's not important for us. We're we're rejoicing because really the gospel is, um, is exalted and, and presented as beautiful as it is uh, through this. So, so our heartfelt thanks to each of you. Well, I'm glad today's the last Sunday for our four-week-long celebration. I don't think I could have handled a week more. It, I was telling people it's been like church on steroids. Uh, it's been out of control. I'm barely crawling to the finish line here, and so much of just I'm just tired of laughing and crying. You know what I mean? I just, I just want a normal Sunday where we just sing and preach and fellowship, and it's just kind of even keel, not this roller coaster ride. And we just go home, and I'm just wiped out. I'm just emotionally drained. My wife and our kids are all excited. They're like, i think disappointed that they're looking for the bounce house. I think I saw Ethan run to the back. And sorry, Ethan. Ten more years. Uh, and so, praise God, though. It's been a good month. It's been such a great month. We, we thank the Lord for, for His faithfulness. And today I want to share with you our study from Luke 15. And uh, I think most of you have, have, have um, seen it. I, I, the world has changed. Um, I think you've perceived it. My heart has changed, the pulpit has changed, our church has changed there's been a dramatic shift in our, our our vision our understanding our apprehension of who god is and what he has accomplished in the cross so everything has changed it's not something you can see physically but it is clearly there it's 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 uh, akin to when the world changed with the understanding of of existence of germs and viruses and bacteria These surgeons were doing um, surgery on patients, and yet they would get infected, and they would get worse, and and many would die. And doctors could not understand what was causing their patients to to, uh, not get better and get get even worse and die. And they thought it was their methods. They thought it was their uh, approach. They thought it was their techniques, and they tried all sorts of ways to help their patients, but more they did, more their patients suffered. They are at their wits' end, and yet someone came up, and they found that there were these germs, bacteria, and viruses. And when you do surgery, and this is what causes infections, what they need to do is just, wash their hands thoroughly and disinfect their instruments with alcohol, and you do surgery this way, then infection is minimized and patients actually get better after surgery. So from that moment on, the world changed for them. Their approach, their whole approach to caring for patients changed. Well, similarly, um, in our church with, with the gospel, this is my fourth time preaching Luke 15 at Cornerstone. The first time I preached Luke 15, the focus was on the younger son. And I think he, we could have named him John Ree, You know this guy, man. It's like perfect Sunday. You just call him John, right? Make it easy for him to understand. Lived in Santa Ana, got in fights, wanted to be what Alabama. I don't know why. You know why? You were in Southern California. I do you go to Alabama? But wanted to go to Obama and just live this like wasteful life and so that was the focus of the sermon and it was a call to all the johns out there come back to christ the second time i preached it it was the fo- it was focused on the father and it was more god-centered and look at the mercy of the father look at his grace how he waited for his son and though he was shamed he was humiliated before his family, before his friends, his society. And yet, look at his compassion, his love. And he welcomed him back. Let's look at the father. The third time we studied it, there was an advance, there was a progression, a growth and understanding where we focus rightly on the older son. And that's uh, really the contest. We'll look at this uh, in a few minutes. But that's the context, the focus is on the older son, and how he is angry, he is full of self-righteousness, and he is angry at the father, angry at his brother, and he will not rejoice, he will not enter the party. And you see his heart and heart towards the father. And yet, I saw that as religious people. Um, The the people with uh, big hats and flowing robes and candles and rituals and rules and regulations. Hindu, Islam, Roman Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, older son personified these workspace religion. And they're not about the Father's grace, they're all about works, about earning your way um, to God's favor. And that's why they're angry. Today, what has changed is, we needed to go a step further. It's like the germ theory. It wasn't the patient, it wasn't the techniques, the methods. It was the instruments, it was the the, the surgeon's hands that was causing the infection. Likewise, moralism, being self-righteous, this legalism is not out there. In Salt Lake City or in Italy or in Eastern Orthodox Church in Russia, it's in our hearts. We are all older brothers. right? The default state, Luther said this. the default state of the human heart is religion. Keller's modifies that it says the default state of the human heart is legalism. And so that's how the world has shifted. We see ourselves here. Every time we pop ourselves up based upon our works for our Christian lives, we're on the outside looking in. That's why we struggle with anger. We fear burnout. That is why we have fear and anxiety, self condemnation, pity, judging others because we are the older brother so with that perspective let's look at Luke 15 we'll kind of do a cursory study um, context and then the first two main characters the younger son and the father but devote devote much of our time on the older son at the end again the setting is key The historical setting in which this parable is given uh, is so important for us to understand the thrust of uh, this whole chapter. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, Luke sets it up for us. and, And this is so important. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him to hear Him. They were crowding the Lord. Jesus welcomed them. He was celebrating with them. He was feasting with them. Uh, Eating a meal was a very intimate thing in ancient Near East. You would eat with your bare hands. You would lie on on sofas. It was a uh, long-term, whole-night event experience. And he welcomed these uh, lower strata of their society, these sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards these men and women from the back streets he welcomed them to dine with him and to be with him it was a common sight this happened wherever our Lord went so much so that the Pharisees had a label for Jesus a derogatory label he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners he is a friend of sinners we see this in Luke 7 with Mary. Washes our Lord's feet with her hair, and the the Pharisees are watching, and they're condemning him in their hearts. If he knew what kind of woman she was, this this a prophet would never act this way. A holy, righteous man would never allow such a, a a perverse, adulterous prostitute to come near him, let alone touch him, let alone. Wash him with her hair. Our Lord knew this. And and our Lord, it wasn't an accident, it was intentional on his part. He welcomed this and he asked Peter, Peter, who would be more thankful? A person who was forgiven of a little debt or a person who was forgiven of a great debt? Peter's clueless. He's thinking, talking about economics here, right? He's talking about like the economy. Oh, yeah, it's the guy forgiven a great debt. And Jesus, likewise, when I came, no one washed my feet. But this woman, she washed my feet with her hair because her sins are forgiven. This wasn't an accidental occurrence by Christ. It was intentional. It was purposeful. He welcomed her. Uh, we see that in Luke 18 when the tax collector and the Pharisee, they're praying. And the Pharisee's in the front row praying about himself. He's boasting of his accomplishments, his achievements. He's praying about himself before all to hear. And yet, the tax collector is in the back row, head bowed, beating his chest. Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. He is so beaten down with his sins, he can't even look up. And our Lord said, this tax collector was justified. He was made right. His sins were atoned. He has been reconciled to the Father. Not that task collector. Remember Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the task collector. He's up in the tree look, trying to look for, look at Jesus. And Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, this task collector, and says, Tonight, I've chosen a place to dine. I have all these invitations from all these dignitaries, all these power brokers of the city, all these famous, important people. I've declined them all. I want to have dinner with these Zacchaeus. Come down. That's a running theme throughout the Gospels, throughout our Lord's ministry. That was his M.O. That was his way of uh, showing God's heart towards the lost. And in that way, exposing the corruption of the self-righteous, of those who are committed to religion, those who are committed to establishing their own moral righteousness, and in that way, trying to control God. It was God's way of condemning them, exposing them, and hardening their hearts towards Himself. And this is repeated again in Luke 15. They're gathered here, and uh, they're angry. The task of the sinners are crowding in Christ in verse 2. They're grumbling about the fact that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. So our Lord is setting them up. He gives them three successive parables that culminate with the final parable of the prodigal son. But he begins with the least valuable thing. You have a hundred sheep and one is lost. He leaves the 99 to go look for the one that's lost. Now, if that rancher finds the one sheep that was lost, he brings, a, brings that sheep back on his back. What would he say? He would tell his friends, Hey guys, I lost a sheep. You know what? A master tracker, right? Somehow I went out and man, I found it, right? I mean, I found the sheep and I rescued it. All right, let's kill it and eat it and celebrate. (laughs) No, I don't know. Maybe. Let's rejoice, kind of party for what was happened." Wouldn't the friends be like, "That's great news! Are you lost? This thing you found it. You want a party? I'm there. I'm there early. I'm staying late." Right? Another woman loses a valuable coin. Right? An ounce of gold is a thousand dollars. Right? Lost an ounce of gold, maybe. Right? And she searching all over the house and she finds it. She invites her friends. I found a thousand dollars. Come rejoice. Wouldn't wouldn't you come and say free food, right? Free drink, free celebration. I'm parting with you. The theme is re- rejoicing. The theme is celebrating. The the thrust is the one of joy of celebrating the, with with the one who's found, right? Who are, you didn't find the sheep, you didn't find the coin. You're celebrating with someone you love because of their joy. Something that they had lost, they found, they recovered, they regained. So you are coming to celebrate with them over their joy. And you receive everything. You don't give anything. All you're doing is receiving. Because of what, what happened to someone else. And yet here in the third parable, the indictment is against the Pharisees. Because they are not rejoicing. They don't want to party. They don't want to celebrate. Here is Christ, representing the Father, and He is here rejoicing, throwing this party, because people that have been lost, have come back and returned to the Father, they've been found, they were dead, now they're alive, and yet the Pharisees, by these religious, moral, ethical, self-righteous, right, they don't, there's no joy, instead there's anger, there's frustration, there's anxiety, there's complaining, there's grumbling, there is rebellion in their hearts. Right? There is rebellion in their hearts. And so our Lord is setting them up with the first two parables, with the third parable, right? How much more ought you rejoice? If you would rejoice over a sheep that was found, or a coin that was found, how much more would you rejoice? over a person or people that are return to the Lord. Let's go to the third parable in verse 11. It is the final culminating parable. There are three characters here. The younger son, the father, and finally the older son. And because of the context, I hope you understand that the central character of this parable is not the younger son. I, I know musicians like to write the song about the younger son. And I know like our hearts, right, gravity towards the younger son. Because it's such a dramatic story. But he's not the main character. The father is not the main character either, even though his grace and mercy is incredible. It's amazing. The central character, because of the context, is the older son. And he warrants our attention. So let's uh go through the story of this parable in a humiliating way expose the sins and the hypocrisy of this of this- Pharisees and and exposes and humiliates all of us right? like we're not pointing fingers at them we're this parable condemns us. Because this is who we are. This is where we live. Practically, functionally, daily, we are the older son. This is the idolatry of the heart. The sin behind all our sins is self worship. Lovers of self. We want to be God. We want worship. We want control. We want praise for our righteous deeds, for our accomplishments. That is us. We are on the outside looking in. Let's start with the younger son. We all know this story, right? This guy, restless, kind of spoiled, right, uh, kind of selfish. Sorry, John. <laughs> it's like, it's both of us, right? And he's restless. He wants to live his life, he wants to enjoy. So, what does he do? He goes to his father and says, "I want my shared inheritance now." So, in the ancient Near East, much like the A- Asian culture, the older son got twice what the younger siblings got. Right? That's the order. That's that's the hierarchy. Um, so, they were only two sons. So, the, the older son would get two thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would get one third. But that would happen at an important point in their lives the fa- after the father died he after his death they would parcel out his inheritance the younger son's like you're kind of healthy you know you don't have health issues and you take good care of yourself and you avoid risky you know <laughs> risky uh, you don't go mountain biking or uh, snowboarding or whatever you don't go skydiving so i think you're gonna live a long time and by that time i'm gonna be too old to enjoy this life so he does something that is just unbelievable. He says, I want it now. I, I want my share now. I want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't care about propriety or respect or honor or love. I just want my share. Now, the father could have said, are you kidding me? Right. Get out of my house. All right? And everything, what you're wearing, right? Your sandals and all mine. walk." Go oh, out wow, naked. That's maybe what I would have done, right? Many of us would have done that. A different kind of father. Right? He loves his son. So he does that. He gives him a third of his inheritance. So everything else that he has now belongs to the older son. This is important. right? Everything that is in his estate belongs to his older son. After he dies, his older son will get it. His younger son goes out and lives life like... Um, like a, like a rock star. And he blows it. He blows it. Extravagant living. And of course, uh, the Great Recession hit right? Uh, 2,000 years ago. Famine hit the land. Out of a job. All his friends are gone. He's all alone. He's working, feeding pigs. A dirty animal. Considered dirty by uh, uh, Jewish people. Not only that. He longs to eat what the pigs were eating, right His food was worse than what the pigs were eating. So he comes to his senses and he's repentant, and he says, "What have I done? I'll go back to my father." and I'll say, "Father, I am unworthy to be your son, but can I be one of your hired servants? Your, your hired servants eat better, live better than how I live. I made a terrible mistake. I was just so foolish and proud. Will you take me back? And I can't presume to come back as a son. But I'll be your slave. And I'll live in the stable, stable. And I'll just be your hired hand. He he walks back. And then the second character is the father. And it's amazing what we see. The father is there looking out. And he sees the son. And and, and Christ makes it a point to show that the father saw the son first. And and We see a lot of verbs employed in describing the father's response to the son. He saw the son, active tense, and then he ran to the son. He girded up his loins, his his, his skirt, he tied it up, and he ran an undignified posture for an older man of, of his position in society. And yet, prompted by his love and compassion, he ran toward him. Uh, and then we would half expect and then he thrust his hand and slapped him in the face, right? I Spit at him, pulled his hair, because it was obvious he was coming back destitute. Right? If, if the son had come back, tripling the wealth, right? He quadrupled it. He comes back in a royal chariot with servants lying behind him. Then maybe I would embrace him, right? I'll be like, oh, come back, son, right? Welcome back. He comes back destitute, like a beggar. And yet, it's the most astonishing thing. The father runs to him. What does he do? Next verb, our Lord employs, is he embraced him. He hugs him. And then he lavishes kisses on his son, right? And then he says, my son. And the son responds, he had this. Whole speech memorized. I am unworthy to be your son. Hired, make me your hired servant. And the father responds, no. Right. And he tells the servants, bring the best robe. <clears throat> right. Put it on the son. Bring my ring. Signifying, I'm adopting him back to my family. And we have this fattened calf. And you know, we eat meat all the time. Ancient Near East, meat was very valuable and, pre- and very valuable expensive. And. And meat was a special like meat reserved for special meals, special events, special celebrations. That fattened calf it. We're going to party tonight because our son has returned who was dead is now alive. What amazing grace. What mercy. Thomas Watson in the systematic theology said what attribute that stands out to him among all the attributes of God. Is God's mercy. He's a merciful, merciful, merciful God. And we see that here in our Lord's parable. The Father's grace, mercy is is indescribable. He doesn't just welcome Him back as His slave. He adopts Him back as His son. He gives Him what He doesn't deserve. He gives Him grace. And what does He do? He throws a celebration, a party in His honor uh, for everyone to celebrate. Now if the parable ended there, we would say, what a great parable. What a great story. How much greater, because that's our experience in the gospel. All Christians here understand this because that's what we have experienced firsthand. That's not where it ends. Here is the spin. The third character comes into the scene and uh, he's out in the field working and he hears music. He hears roar of celebration and he leaves his work in the field and comes to this big tent that's been set up in their their estate and his servants come and say, Ah, your younger son has come back destitute. This is what your father has done. Giving him a ring, signifying adoption to, back into the family. Oh, the best robe, and slaughtering the fattened calf. Now, the older son, his, he's getting angry because that's all his stuff. right? The father is giving, even though he's not dead, he's thinking, this is my stuff. He's giving away. Right, without my permission. He's filled with anger and indignation. Became very angry. And the father notices him outside the tent. So again, the mercy and grace of the father. Just like he ran to the younger son. He leaves the tent to go to the older son. And he pleads with him. All right, come in. He says your brother was dead but now is alive he's lost and he's found it is fitting it is right that we celebrate what is the older son's response verse 29 look these many years i have served you and it it is i have slaved for you i never disobeyed your command perfect righteousness right everyone's righteous in his own eyes the Pharisees' perspective, they were perfectly obedient to the law of God. This older son says, I obeyed you perfectly. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So he wasn't um, doing this because of loved for the Father. He was doing this for what he can get in return. Right? It's all about reciprocity, equality. It's all, all about I do this and you give me this, but you haven't, so you owe me. But when the son of yours came, devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's saying, I've worked hard, you gave me no banquet. You're giving your other son a banquet, and all he did was sin. I have neglected, never neglected a command of yours. We see here the underpinnings of all religion where it's workspace righteousness, workspace salvation to those who work hard and labor, are conscientious and, and, and diligent about their uh, religious duties, they are the ones that get kingdom of God, celebration in heaven. For all of those who live in sin, who waste their lives pursuing sinful desires, they are left outside. But God's gospel is the opposite. it. it Destroys the foundation of false religion. And he gives them the gospel. Well. The progression here is. We're not just looking at the religious. uh, Those committed to external righteousness. When we see the older son. We see ourselves. Pre-Christ and Post Christ, even as Christians. It tells us there are two ways to be our own Savior and Lord. Two ways of self-worship, of fulfilling our idolatrous desires, right? Living for ourselves. We can do it by disobeying every command of the Bible, and we can also be idols of ourselves by obeying every idol, every command of the Bible. Does that make sense? We can say, I'm going to live for my own pleasure, my own delight, my own uh, dreams and aspirations. I'm going to live for myself. Forget the Bible. At the same time, we can obey every command of the Bible and yet still be living for ourselves. Nourishing our own idolatry. Living in utter sinfulness. There's two ways to be our own Savior and Lord. Is by being very, very, very bad. And also by being very, very, very good. Both are ways of rejecting God. Right? Both are ways. You reject God both ways. But you know what's more? Uh, the younger son, uh, he knows he's in sin. So there's, that's why they're, they're parting with Jesus. They're inside the tent. Right, Like they know, like they're guys, you know, I see a guy backslidden from Christ and I can see pictures on Facebook and he's like drinking and smoking and living in sin. But I know this guy, I know, and I look at his eyes and I know he feels guilty. He knows like, it's not right. So at least they know, they see. But those of us who prodden our Christian abilities, Christian achievements, Christian devotions. We're worse off because we're blind. Our righteous deeds, our ministry, our good works, ours in word and prayer, our knowledge blinds us to how much we've strayed away from God. This is more insidious. This is more dangerous. Right? That's why Gersner said, right? I mean, how many times I quoted this in the last month? What separates us is not just our sins. What separates us from God is our righteousness. Christians, we need to repent not just of our sins, but our damnable good works. When a younger brother backslides, it's clear. Everybody sees his sins. But what's dangerous is when an older brother backslides. He looks more righteous. He's more holy he reads the Bible more. He's praying more. He's more passionate. He's going to mission trips. He's serving. He's slaving away. Everybody loves him. I think we those of you who have children. We would love this older brother. He would. We have a picture of him right above our fireplace. Our younger son, why don't you go play in the back room, right? We have important guests coming.
1: Here, my older
0: son, come to the front room and meet our guests, right? And yet, um, he's the one right, who ultimately um, killed Christ. Um, MacArthur's take on this in his uh, sermon, Tale of Two Sons, is that the logical conclusion is, this older son is so um, filled with anger that he kills the father right there. He murders him. And then he goes into the tent and kills the younger son and takes possession of the father's estate. That's the law's conclusion, and that's exactly what happened, right? The irreligious, the secular, the re- the younger brothers—they don't—they still love the father, right? They're living in sin. They're shaming their family, but the worst is they mock them, shame them, humiliate them. But it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious that murdered God's son. The persecution that we're experiencing. The past 2,000 years have been by and large by the religious community. Right? It was Saul who persecuted. The first martyr, Stephen, was by a Pharisee, by a religious person. Right? On and on throughout church history until the end of the age. It's those who are exposed by the gospel will respond with hatred, vehemence, and even murder. So, we look at ourselves, and we look at the gospel, and it shows us something amazing. That there are not two ways to live, there are three ways. That there is the secular, irreligious way, there is the religious way, and there is the gospel way. Right? And gospel is completely other. Religious people obey to get things, to control God, to feed their pride, to feed their own uh, sense of self-righteousness, to judge others, compare themselves, others to feel superior. The irreligious look at the religious and mock them and condemn them, and how they use those terms: dogmatic, intolerant, self-righteous. Gospel Christians. We uh, are lost in the gospel. We have forgotten ourselves. We see ourselves as the worst of all sinners. We We say there is nothing good in me. I have no platform to judge anybody because I murdered God's son. And so motivated by the gospel of God's grace, we obey. Not to get something. Not to get anything. Not to get anything in return. Not to have a blessed life. We just obey. Because of the gospel alone. And to get God. But sadly, what is most common, and I think that was my testimony, and I think for many of us here at Cornerstone, uh, what is common in our church is uh, is older brothers. And we're busy trying to make younger brothers like us. I would venture to guess, John, if you were saved here five, eight years ago, we would have made an older brother out of you, right? We would have eventually, because we're such type A, right, grinded out culture, leaders, members, that we would have sapped that first love and made you to do things out of duty, obligation, fear of man, pleasing man, anxiety, or controlling God eventually. We need to know more about this older brother lostness. It is uh, much more dangerous. Much more dangerous. Now, how can we know? What are some symptoms? We can't know, right? We can't look into our hearts and uh, magically like be diagnosed. We got to look at our symptoms. Five symptoms, five traits of having an older brother heart. It's all from Keller. First of all, first is when life doesn't go as you plan, as you like, you get angry. You get angry. You get angry at God, angry at yourself, or angry at the world, angry at others. So, you fail, you fall short, you mess up, you make mistakes, things don't turn out the way you want. You don't get the appreciation you desire. You don't get the attention or the honor or whatever. So what happens? You condemn yourself. What's wrong with me? I'm such a loser. I'm such a disappointment. I can't even read my Bible consistently. I can't even pray like others. I'll never be holy like him or her. Right? I'm I'm just a total disappointment. I'm a Christian, but outside of that, man, I'm just... Right. So you you... Express your anger by hating yourself, condemning yourself. Or you blame others. You, you know, like easy target is parents. Man, I'm a victim. My parents, right? it's their fault. If only they like, right, did this or didn't do that, I would have turned out right. Or you blame your spouse. It's all my wife's fault. My husband. Blame your children. Right? Or blame the world. Second trait is uh, lack of joy, lack of celebration. There's a, 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 a me- mechanical, joyless obedience. Your life is like running the treadmill lots of uh, activity, lots of sweat, calories burned, but you're not getting anywhere. Right? You're just surviving. And so you're always fear of burning out. You're always fear of burning out. You're in a grinded out mindset, drudgery mindset. And so you're always just uh, trying to find motivation and and working harder. And that's from last week's sermon. You experience the shame of your sins and so you compensate by working harder. If only I could read my Bible every day this week. Only if I could do ministry well this week. If only I could serve my wife well or work hard or be a good employee or be a good son, then I can find redemption. And yet you do that for years and there's no joy. Just external mechanical external obedience. Thirdly, there's a lack of assurance of the Father's love. Lack of intimacy because you see god's love expressed through how life turns out you never gave me a banquet so i don't know i don't know you you're not my father i don't know if you love me right so we look at our lives and go wow like how come i'm not happy this this doesn't happen for me my situation in my life my family my finances right All these things. and So, does God love me? I don't know God's mercy or grace. Instead of seeing our lives through the gospel, God gave us His only Son. We murdered Him, and yet He forgave us of our sins. Adopted us into His family, guaranteeing us heaven. God loves me. I'm sure of that. Instead of that, we look at life. look at God and our relationship with Him based on what have you done for me lately. Therefore, there is lack of intimacy in prayer, lack of intimacy in joy and praise and fellowship and ministry. Fourthly, uh, older brothers hold grudges. They're always judging. Right? They can't forgive. They're always condemning others. They find their self-validation. They find their self-worth. They find their. applause, affirmation in in their comparison to other people. Can't let go, can't forgive. And finally, Christian life is all about what you have done, what you haven't done. Christian life is all about external, externals. What you have done as a Christian and what you haven't done because you're a Christian. I mean we, just think about that ponder upon that consider that like how do you like how do you evaluate your christian life my honest testimony to you is um in the past month i've become a worse christian in the traditional sense i've read the bible less right? i've prayed less right? i have prepared less i've ministered less so but because back then i was motivated by fear and self-worship disappointing people and my i don't know like obligation and this kind of like conscientiousness i labored in this for myself because of the gospel i've done less of these things but if i were to give myself as a grade past month i'd give myself maybe a d plus but because of the gospel I'm savoring the gospel more. I'm depending on the Lord more. I'm trusting in Christ more. Becoming Christ-like is not, well, I can't wait to be Christ-like so I don't have to depend on the Bible. One day I'll be so Christ-like, I'll be the strong, independent Christian that doesn't need the church, need fellowship, need, need the Bible, need prayer. I'll be strong. That was my old mindset. But now with the gospel more trusting, more delighting, more savoring, more contemplating, pondering. So it's less of me, more what Christ has done. Right? That's what uh, we see I shared share last week about Peter and Judas. Essentially, they both did the same thing. They both denied the Lord. But Judas went back to religion or never left religion. He sinned, so he paid for it. And we do that. We pay penance for our sins. Right? We try to compensate. Make up for sins of commission and sins of omission. Peter didn't do anything. right? He denied the Lord and then he went fishing. right? That's all he did. Right? No penance. Jesus asked three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? What is your motivation? Do you love me? That's all, that's all God cares about. Right? Church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, what is the Lord's condemnation on this church? They work hard. They're discerning in theology. Right? They're devout in their uh, ministry. But His one condemnation is you forsaking your first love. Right? You're abounding in all these external things, but you're not doing it out of love for me. You're doing it for yourself. How can we get home? How can we uh, find our way back to the Father? From our sins, but for most of us, from our own righteousness, good works, external religion. Um, First of all, look at the Father. Look at His love. Look how He comes out of the tent to meet us. He goes after the hardened prostitutes and the hardened Pharisees. He's not less loving to us. He he runs to the, the the younger son and he runs to the older son. So consider how the father has run and is running to us today. Right? Secondly, uh, consider the sin behind the sin. Right? We repent not just of our external sins. That's just. The tip of the iceberg. Our repentance goes to the sin behind the sin. That, that idol where we want to be God. We want to be above God. We want to be in control. We want the, the applause, the worship, the glory and honor. We want to control God. We want to be our own savior by our good works. And our obedience of sin. By our pride. Repent. Of of the sin behind the sin. How do we do that? It's, it's the same way of how we became Christians. When we became Christians, what did we say? Someone, someone, a good person shared the gospel with us, and that gospel was stop working, trust the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe, trust, look, behold hear, understand, receive, it's all passive, it's not do these things and you'll be saved, it's just believe, same thing, how can we be rescued from idolatry that has enslaved us at the core of our being, the way out is the gospel, by believing in the gospel, trusting it, for our sanctification, for our Christian lives, for our self-image. And then finally, oh, have your hearts be moved. Have your hearts be melted by what it cost to bring us home. It cost God, His only Son. It wasn't free for Him. It's free for us, but it cost God, His only begotten Son, That we might be brought home to be with him. So consider the great gift that the Father has lavished on us. And may that move our hearts. May that melt our hearts and cause us to come back home. Let's pray. Oh, merciful, merciful, merciful Father, you have lavished upon us all the spiritual blessings in heaven through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at what we have done to deserve this, we are brought brought so low because uh, all we did was waste our lives, sin against you, blaspheme your name, make a mockery of your word, and Murdered your son. We were there. We, we, we hear our voices in the throngs. That cried out. Crucify him. Every time we sinned against you. We were. We were declaring. We were demanding. That your son be crucified. And Lord how you have treated us. Oh, by grace. And you have saved us. And forgiven us. And adopted us into your family and yet we are so prone uh, our hearts uh, prone to wander prone to leave the God that we love we want to go back to Egypt we want to be slaves again to religion to legalism to outward morality because of our idolatry of self Lord rescue us save us ransom us help us free us from ourselves help us Lord uh, to find our way back to you through the gospel of Christ. Or, oh Lord, may we never leave the gospel. It is the power of God for our salvation, and that salvation includes our life, includes heaven, includes the whole thing. It is your whole gift to us. So, Lord, may we humbly receive the gift of this transformed life by faith in the gospel of Christ. May we be in this lowly place just receiving receiving all that you have for us in Christ. We thank you for oh, your precious gospel. Oh, made it uh, do a powerful work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.